Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller and we are broadcasting live for the first time in 2024 online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, a Decatur cop is charged with murder. They're going to try to privatize the schools again this year in Alabama. And we are back with last week in Southern Labor and Boss Watch, all that and more on today's program. If you want to be part of the show today, we've got a phone number and the line is open again. That phone number is 844-899-8857. That phone number is uh, 844-899-TVLR. I'm hearing something in my... um, yeah, I'm hearing an echo as well. I don't know what that's about. Um, yeah, me either. Let me uh, let me try uh, to change scenes here real quick and see if that fixes it. Yeah, but, there uh, you go. Call or text 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail, send us a text message throughout the week. Um, if you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, you can find us anywhere you find anything online. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, wherever you get your podcasts, all at The Valley Labor Report. Um, just a reminder, uh, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. If you want to become a sustaining donor to the program, uh, make a one-time donation. Uh, you can do both of those things at tvlr.fm slash donate. You can also go to uh, tvlr.fm slash store to buy our merch or a uh, become a patron at patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. If you're a member of a union, then... Uh, think about getting your local to sponsor the show. You can reach out to us for more details on that. And I'm still hearing an echo. I don't know. Yeah, let me add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you're on YouTube, Facebook, Unclaimed Mysteries, Internet Radio, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check that out. Uh, Jacob, did we get the echo fixed or? No, I'm still hearing it. All right. Should we take, go go to our first break and try to get that sorted out before we dive into last week in Southern Labor? Yeah, let's do that. We'll be right back, folks. Sorry about that. Benefit Architects has proudly supported union members and union-made products for over 35 years. If you are a federal employee and an AFGE member, 
you're eligible for hundreds of dollars in money-saving benefits, including group life insurance, dental insurance, and AFLAC insurance. Additionally, if you're a union member but don't work for the federal government, you can still qualify for several of these money-saving policies. So give Tate Cure a call at 256-215-6769 for details and to enroll. Again, that is Tate Hewer at 256-215-6769. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and family members are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough even to keep their jobs. We can fix this. It's time for us to find a way to close the health care coverage gap so that people can remain at work. Let's make this a priority. Let's close this gap and cover Alabama. To learn more and how you can help, visit CoverAlabama.org. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have stood with the working people of Alabama for over 40 years, providing skilled legal representation for your workplace injury claims. When you are injured on the job, it can be a scary time. The attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs have the experience to guide you through the process to make sure that you and your family are properly taken care of and your rights are protected. If you need help, call the attorneys at Maples, Tucker & Jacobs at 855-617-9333 or visit online at www.mtnj.com. No representation is made that the quality of legal services provided is greater than the quality of legal services provided by other law firms. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. Attention union members, membership organizations, podcasters, or anyone with a payment processing need. The future is here, and your organization needs to be prepared by working with Unionly. With Unionly, your union or organization can take payments on a mobile device, eliminating processing fees, giving you a better price than other payment processing methods, while at the same time supporting a union-friendly business with a specialized skill set to meet your needs. Your members will thank you when they pay their dues at their convenience without waiting in line to deposit cash or check. Start preparing for the future today by calling 206-595-8631 or visiting unionly.io. Are you looking for a better future, a career that can have you set for life, and to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself? If you are, then consider a skilled trades apprenticeship with the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades. The work of IUPAT is all around us, from the industrial painters who work on the bridges to drywall finishers, floor coverers, the glazers who install the glass in our skylines, and so much more. With an IUPAT apprenticeship, you earn while you learn and receive benefits while learning the trade, including a pension. We provide world-class education free of charge. That's right, no student debt. Our starting salaries for apprentices that graduate is above the national median salary with benefits for entire families. And you have the flexibility to take your trade wherever you'd like in the country to work. IUPAT District Council 77 covers our entire region, so give Adam Booth a call at 205-603-3142 for more information. Again, that phone number is 205-603-3142. Come build a better future with us today and join IUPAT. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, 
You need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Come on, you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. We are back with the Valley Labor Report. Sorry about that. It was my fault. I had my laptop was not uh, was not muted, so I was hearing I was hearing that echo. So apologies for that. Um, but appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, we have about 15 people watching already, and only two people have liked the stream. What is up with that? Uh, Tempest Lord Rahan in the YouTube chat. Um, uh, welcome. Uh, appreciate you tuning in. Uh, James from Tampa, Florida. Uh, Benjo says good morning. PA Leggett uh, from West Virginia. Reese says good morning. Uh, yeah, great to have all of y'all with us. Um, looking forward to being back. Um, I, uh, I I definitely enjoy doing this. I think I find it somewhat therapeutic, and uh, so I'm looking forward to uh, to jumping into some of this stuff. Um, the first thing that we're going to get to today is last week in Southern Labor, uh, and it is uh, actually more accurately the last three weeks in Southern Labor because we were last on the radio on December 15th or 16th. Uh, since then, we've been uh, uh, pre-taped best of episodes. So we've got a lot to catch up on. A lot. It's like uh, a couple of thousand of words. It's crazy. Uh, missed a lot of stuff while we were gone. So we're going to try to go uh, roll through it really quick. And without further ado, here is what workers in the U.S. South and the American colonies were up to in the weeks from 15 December to 5 January. We had several new campaigns, uh, uh, 10 remote animation workers at Disney in six states, including Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia, filed for a union election with IATSE's Animation Guild, Local 839. 51 workers at CQ Roll Call in Washington, D.C., filed for a union election with the News Guild CWA after the employer rejected their request for a voluntary recognition. 100 workers at Monongolia Emergency Medical Services in Morgantown, West Virginia, filed for a union election with the International Association of EMTs and Paramedics. IAEP, which is the division of the National Association of Government Government Employees, NAGE, which is affiliated with SEIU. Not going to spell out that acronym. I'll let you figure it out. Workers likely intimidated or pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify Workers United as the union representing 12 workers at Advantis Corporation in Petersburg, Virginia. The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 21 security guards, uh, security officers at Meow Wolf Dallas in Grapevine, Texas, showed support for a unionization with, I'm not sure, the filing does not say. Meanwhile, 
The employer also filed for another union election after a majority of the 71 other workers <coughs> at Meow Wolf Dallas showed support for unionization with the Communication Workers of America. Uh, Meow Wolf is an artist collective. Nine workers at the Peace Center Foundation in Greenville, South Carolina, filed for a union election with the International Alliance of Theatrical and Stage Employees, IATSE, Local 322. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify the retail, wholesale, and department store union, RWDSU, as the union representing the 62 workers at Nestle in McDonough, Georgia. I say RWDSU is the union, although the NLRB filing again doesn't mention the union, because I found a press release about the RWDSU winning an election there in 2017. Six workers at Public Television 19 in Kansas City, Missouri, filed for a union election with the National Association of Broadcast Employees and Technicians, NABET-CWA. 24 workers at Platinum Waste Disposal in Ganaibo, Puerto Rico, filed for a union election, but the NLRB case page does not say which with which union. This has been an unusually common occurrence in this roundup, as you will continue to see. 24 skilled maintenance workers at Duke University in Raleigh, North Carolina, filed for a union election with the International Union of Operating Engineers, IUOE, Local 465. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed for a union, uh, filed a petition to decertify the Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU, locals 714 and 1493 as the union representing the 15 workers at GTA RATP Dev in Greensboro, North Carolina. Five workers at CBD Kratom in St. Louis, Missouri, filed for a union election, as did four workers at another location in the same city, but again, the NLR... Uh, the NLRB case page does not say who. Uh, maybe the Teamsters Local 955. I say that because they just won the second dispensary election, second dispensary union election in Missouri in August. So it's not a bad guess. The other guess would be UFCW. The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 26 workers at Neil R. Gross and Company in Washington, D.C. showed support for unionization with Court Reporters United. The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 20 workers at Starbucks in St. Anne, Missouri, uh, showed support for a unionization with Starbucks Workers United. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify the Transport Workers United, TWU, Local 513, as the union representing the 21 workers at Menzies Aviation in Dallas, Texas. The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 24 workers at Ballet Austin in Austin, Texas, showed support for a unionization with the American Guild of Musical Artists, a missed opportunity to uh, recreate the Simpsons Union. The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 54 workers at Stratus Systems in Dallas, Texas, showed support for unionization with presumably the sheet metal Air and Rail Transportation Workers, SMART. I say presumably because, again, the NLRB case page does not show a union, but I did find a recent board charge filed by SMART against the same employer in the same town. 85 workers at Southern Electric Corporation in Miami, Florida filed for a union election, but it doesn't say who with. Nine workers at Wiener King of Cumberland County doing business as Wiener Works in Fayetteville, North Carolina, filed for a union election with the National Labor Union. Uh, hmm. hmm. 
The employer filed for a union election after a majority of the 20 workers at Starbucks in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, showed support for unionization with the Starbucks Workers United. 24 workers at Keystone Supply Company in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, filed for a union election with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, Local 886. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify Starbucks Workers United as the union representing 14 workers at a Starbucks in Jacksonville, Florida. 29 workers at the Disability Law Center of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia, filed for a union election, but it doesn't say who with. Workers likely pushed by their employer filed a petition to decertify CWA Local 3808 as the union representing the 124 workers at AT AT&T Mobility Tennessee IHX in Gallatin, Tennessee. 12 workers at Wolf Creek Federal Services, pipe fitters and sheet metal workers in Huntsville, Alabama. Filed for a union election with the United Association of Plumbers and Steamfitters, UA, Local 760, and 16 other workers at Wolf Creek Federal Services, uh, Electricians and Carpenters in Huntsville, Alabama, filed for a union election with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, IBEW, Local 558. Both of the unions with nice big halls in the city. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's, that's The really only cool. unions with, uh, no, there is also the laborers have a, have a hall. Laborers have a halt. It's not as big, but yeah. Very cool. Four workers at Lee County Electrical Cooperative in North Fort Myers, Florida, filed for a union election to add them to the bargaining unit already represented by IBEW Local 1933. We had a couple of campaign updates on the UAW organizing campaign uh, that happened over the break. The UAW's Sean Fain and Volkswagen workers, uh, Volkswagen worker organizers, visited the Chattanooga Volkswagen plant with a faith and community coalition to demand they end their union busting. And 33 U.S. senators issued a letter to non-union auto companies calling on them to cease union busting activities. Absent from the list were both of Alabama's senators, despite the fact that there are multiple non-union auto companies that are being targeted by the UAW's organizing campaign in their state. Had several election results. Again, going to start off with some of the bad news. 11 groups of workers withdrew their petition for a union election. Three workers, uh, there were four groups of workers at UPS in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, all withdrew their petition to unionize with the Teamsters Local 89, and another group of UPS workers in Campbellsville, Kentucky, also withdrew their petition to unionize with Teamsters Local 89. I am hopeful, because this is UPS, and I think think that presumably there's some sort of neutrality agreement that they have in their National Master Agreement, I'm hopeful that uh, those petitions for election were withdrawn because uh, they got voluntary recognition, but I don't know. We'll see. 33 workers at High Profile Dispensary in Columbia, Missouri, uh, uh, withdrew their petition for union election with UFCW Local 655, as did four workers at Red Label in Stillwater, Oklahoma, with UFCW Local 1000. 290 workers at Places for People Incorporated in St. Louis, Missouri, with SEIU. 15 security guards at Walton's Walden Security in Washington, D.C., with the United States Court Security Officers. And 10 workers at Waxwork Recording Company in Harahan, Louisiana. And finally, the last group of workers that withdrew their petition for a union election 25 workers at Advan 6 in Hopewell, Virginia, with UFCW Local 591C. 
In brighter news, the petition to decertify Teamsters Local 89 as the union representing 36 workers at Taylor Corec in Campbellsville, Kentucky, was also withdrawn, meaning that the Teamsters Local 89 stays. Workers at Alliance Mobile, uh, Alliance Mobile, an AT&T subsidiary meant to get away from the union in Kingsport, Tennessee, voted unanimously in favor of unionization with the CWA. 242 workers at Costco in Norfolk, Virginia, voted 111 to 92 in favor of unionization with the Teamsters Local 822. After the victory, Costco sent out a letter to all employees in the United States saying that the company was, quote, disappointed by the result. Unquote. Puzzlingly, this was called classy by a large progressive Twitter account. That's what some people would call it. I wouldn't call it that myself. 33 workers at Coca-Cola in Beckley, West Virginia, voted 23 to 10 in favor of unionization with the Teamsters Local 175. 53 workers at Kennergy Corporation in Henderson, Kentucky, voted 27 to 26, narrowly scraped by there in favor of unionization with the IBEW Local 1701. 15 workers at Coppers in Newsom's Virginia, voted 5 to 9 to decertify. United Steelworkers Local 14187 01. Two workers at Technica in Fort Bliss, Texas, voted unanimously in favor of unionization with IUOE Local 351. Three workers at TransDev Services in Auburn, Alabama, voted in favor of unionization with the Teamsters Local 612. 23 workers at Starbucks in Durham, North Carolina, voted in favor of unionization with Starbucks Workers United. Two workers at CBRE in Washington, D.C., voted unanimously in favor of unionization with IUOE Local 99. 28 workers at C3 Industries in Columbia, Missouri voted unanimously in favor of unionization with UFCW Local 655. 22 workers at Night Owl's Print Shop in Houston, Texas voted 15 to 5 in favor of unionization with Night Owl's United. Five workers at Alliance Mobile in Morristown, Tennessee voted unanimously in favor of unionization with CWA. 11 workers at Conversion Geeks in Chesterfield, Virginia voted unanimously in favor of unionization with the Animation Guild, IATSE, Local 839. Four workers at CBRE in Dallas, Texas, voted uh, in favor of unionization with IUOE, Local 68. 20 workers at Starbucks in Durham, North Carolina, voted in favor of unionization with Starbucks Workers United. Six workers at Lincare Holdings in Wheeling, West Virginia, voted in favor of unionization with Teamsters, Local 697. Eight workers at Johnson Controls Fire Protection in Springfield, Missouri, voted three to five against unionization with the UA's Road Sprinkler Fitters Local 669. 598 workers, probably the biggest election uh, in this latest roundup, at University Medical Center, New Orleans, in New Orleans, Louisiana, voted 442 to 100 in favor of unionization with National Nurses United. 52 workers at Quest Diagnostics. Uh, clinical laboratories in Abbeville, Georgia, voted 29 to 17 in favor of unionization with Teamsters Local 728. 17 workers at the Oklahoma Policy Institute, a sister organization to Alabama Arise in Tulsa, Oklahoma, voted unanimously in favor of unionization with UFCW Local 1000. And finally, nine workers at Rogers Group in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, voted four to five against unionization with IUOE. 
We had a few settlements, grievances, and unfair labor practices last week. A new ProPublica report alleges widespread abuse of workers on the railroads. From the report, quote, the companies blame workers when they get hurt and motivate supervisors to go to extreme and sometimes dangerous lengths to keep injuries off the books. Unquote. This including paying workers to hide head injuries and having doctors alter records so the company will not have to report the injury. Insane stuff. Universal Orlando agreed to scrap company policies that would have prohibited the wearing of pro-union buttons after a worker filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board and won. Friend of the show, McKenna Schuler broke the, sh- broke the story for the Orlando Weekly. Uh, This is a big one. AFGE secured the reinstatement with back pay and accumulated leave benefits for an employee after a series of discrimination and wrongful termination complaints stemming back to 2017 in uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia. The employee received over $300,000 in back pay, interest, and compensatory damages. That's a huge news. Teamsters at DHL in Kentucky uh, ended their 12-day strike in December after coming to a tentative agreement uh, containing enhanced workplace safety, higher wages, and better benefits. The TA is with the workers for a vote now. The NLRB is alleging that the NCAA abuses the term student-athlete to deprive college players of workplace protections. A recent poll showed 62% of college athletes think that they should form a union. So that's pretty cool. Elon Musk and SpaceX are trying to have the NLRB abolished after it found the company illegally fired workers for their criticisms. We're going to dive into that a little bit more in the second half of the show. Uh, Truckers Movement for Justice is alleging the illegal firings of 18 pro-unionization truck drivers in Texas by employer Lohi Logistics. Several strikes and bargaining updates last week. A coalition of labor groups and allies, including SEIU Local 7 and the Missouri Workers Center, are planning to pack the Jackson County Courthouse to oppose efforts to give the Kansas City Royals taxpayer subsidies for a new stadium without a strong community benefits agreement. Rather than bargaining with its workers, Amazon encouraged its employees over the Christmas break to write a letter to Pecky, the company mascot, named that because Amazon says they are, quote, peculiar, detailing their hardships for the chance that the company might help them in their time of need over the holidays. Amazon workers start at only $17 an hour. Meanwhile, the company in the last quarter tripled its profits, its profits to $9.9 billion. Southwest Airline pilots won a tentative agreement with a 50% raise over the next five years. Members are currently voting on whether or not to accept the deal. 26,000 flight attendants at American Airlines voted by 99% to authorize a strike. They haven't received a raise since 2019. Flight attendants at Southwest, United, and Alaska Airlines are also in contract negotiations. 
Crew members at Atlanta's Alliance Theater, who recently unionized with IATSE Local 798, won their first collective bargaining agreement that includes immediate raises of between 22% and 8%, depending on classification, more overtime, more time off, and better insurance benefits. Teamsters at Anheuser-Busch voted to authorize a strike by 99%. Salisbury, North Carolina firefighters with the uh, International Association of Firefighters, Local 2370, are pushing for step raises for municipal employees. In internal union affairs, uh, there was only one story, but whoo boy, uh, it was a lot. <laughs> so there was lots of drama in minor league football labor over uh, the time that we were off. So the United Football Players Association, UFPA, and keep that acronym in your mind, uh, put out a statement saying that their, quote, partnership with the United Steelworkers has ended, unquote, which led me to believe that the union that won an election to unionize the United States Football League players and lost an election to unionize XFL players would be disaffiliating from the United Steelworkers. However, uh, However, and they said that they were ending their partnership, the UFPA, ending their partnership with the United Steelworkers, because during the, uh, during the merger between XFL and USFL, uh, they are saying that this is going to result in a 50% cut in players and no raise for those that are remaining. And that this happened because the United Steelworkers, quote, stood by and allowed this to happen while, quote, shutting out the UFPA from negotiations. So that sounds pretty bad. However, after this, a new Twitter account appeared uh, calling itself the United States Football League Players Association, USFLPA, uh, USW Local 9000, put out their own statement saying that the UFPA, in fact, was never the bargaining representative of the players and that they were their own non-union, non-profit organization that had been hired to work as organizers for the United Steelworkers organizing campaign and affirmed that their relationship had been terminated. That statement, however, did not address allegations of ineffectiveness, but did say that the XFL players, because of the merger, would automatically be brought into the <coughs> bargaining unit. And in the final response in this back and forth, the United Football Players Association released a video affirming the correctness of the USFLPA's statement, saying that it was a mistake to enlist the USW as their union instead of going independent, and that they are trying to run another election to take over the union in 2024 did you get all that was all that super clear wow yeah crazy that's bonkers <laughs> uh several policy politics and legislative updates elon musk and spacex are seeking to have the nlrb declared illegal after the labor board accused the company of illegally firing eight workers for criticizing the company so much for free speech. A recently released annual report from the Federal Office of Personnel Management showed that telework can be a strong incentive for employee retention amid serious staff shortages across the government. Completely unrelated to the staff shortages many federal agencies are facing, the pay gap between federal workers and similar private sector workers increased again in 2023 to 27%. UE 
Local 150, representing state and municipal workers in North Carolina, has called for Duke University to start paying taxes to the city of Durham to help fund raises for city workers. Labor reporter for the Huffington Post has a great piece reminding folks about Trump's record on labor, which includes, but is certainly not limited to, making it easier for bosses to steal from and physically injure their workers, freezing pay for agricultural immigrant workers, and increasing line speeds in poultry plants. Greyhound is floundering nationwide, prompting calls for its nationalization. Minimum wage workers in 22 states got a raise at the beginning of January, but only one of those states were in the Republican-controlled South, and that's using a liberal notion of the South. It's Missouri. Minimum wage, workers, minimum wage workers in Alabama make $7.25 an hour. Tipped workers can and do make as little as $2.13 an hour. A new lawsuit, quote, alleges that current and former officers and board members of Next Era Energy Incorporated, the parent company of Florida Power and Light, violated federal securities laws by making materially false and misleading statements related to the company's political spending, per AL.com. These officers and board members utilized Alabama's infamous firm, infamous uh, consulting firm, Matrix, to carry out some of this work. Uh, United Steelworkers President David McCall says the U.S. steel buyout by Nippon violates their collective bargaining agreement and would be bad for America. A bipartisan group of Congress members wrote a letter to the Biden administration urging review of the proposed buyout. Biden has responded by saying the purchase deserves, quote, serious scrutiny, unquote, uh, Fairfield Tubular Operations and Fairfield Works in Birmingham are subsidiaries of U.S. Steel, which is also a major landholder in Jefferson County involved in multiple development projects. Regulations implementing Biden's executive order to mandate project labor agreements on all federal projects exceeding $35 million were finally announced. It is estimated that 200,000 workers will gain collectively bargained wages and protections as a result. Cecil Roberts, president of the United Mine Workers of America, eviscerated U.S. Representative Scott Perry for his amendment that would prohibit, quote, the use of funds for MSHA to finalize, implement, or enforce the proposed rule entitled lowering miners' exposure to respirable crystalline silica and in improving respiratory protection, saying that he and others like him are in the dark about critical needs of tens of thousands of their own constituents. The U.S. Postal Service, as part of Trump appointee Louis, Louis DeJoy's wide-ranging 10-year plan to change the Postal Service, which includes recent postage cost increase, by the way, uh, announced a proposal to move a Knoxville, Kentucky distribution center operations to Louisville, Kentucky. Postal workers are speaking out against the proposal. New data showed that more workers died on the job in 2022 than the year before, and House Republicans are seeking to cut funding to both OSHA and MSHA. We had two miscellaneous updates, and then we are done with the big roundup last week in Southern Labor. Uh, work has begun on a $1 billion graphic packaging international paper mill in Waco, Texas, that will reportedly employ 200 people. It is unclear and probably unlikely that these workers will immediately be represented by a union, and I can't find anything about GPI having a national master agreement with any union. 500 United Steelworkers GPI, uh, United Steelworkers members, 
GPI workers down the road in Domino, Texas, recently ratified a five-year contract back in March after narrowly avoiding a strike, and 200 GPI workers in Chicago, Illinois, just unionized with the Teamsters. And finally, thanks to the new UAW contract, per Bloomberg, average hourly earnings for production and non-supervisory <laughs> workers in the transportation equipment manufacturing sector rose 4% in December alone, the largest monthly increase since 1996, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Nice. Woo! There Good we job. go. Good job. Yeah, that was a quite a few quite a few updates. Quite a few updates. Yeah, that's what we get for taking so much time off. Yeah, it was so. surprisingly busy over the Christmas break. It uh, was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was, you know, filings popping up uh, right around the holidays. Um, was glad to see some IATSE uh, wins in, in there. I was glad to see um, the National Nurses United win at uh, yep. New Orleans. That's huge. Yeah. That is probably the biggest one, like you said, of all of them. And, um, I mean, yeah. probably one of the biggest election wins in the South in 2023 in the whole year yeah if i had to guess i would say so it's definitely up there um and so that's really important i think that's a game changer uh would love to see nnu spread throughout the south yeah absolutely so um we're an Alabama radio program, and the Alabama legislative session is going to is going to be starting here i think exactly one January? month from today one month from today. So it starts in February. Yeah, February 6th. Tuesday, Jeez. February 6th, I believe. Jeez. Yeah, so um, never a good thing when a supermajority Republican legislature meets uh, for a legislative session. And two of the big, uh, the two biggest items on the agenda, probably, are Medicaid expansion and school privatization. Uh so um, Medicaid expansion is going to be a, a little bit of a, a quicker explanation, I think. Um, we have a little bit less to say about that because it's so obvious. Like, you know, it's difficult to kind of figure out what the opposition is to that. So, so Adam, tell us what the state of play is or, or remind us Medicaid expansion. What is that? What, you know, what's going on there? How would it benefit or not benefit? Maybe it's terrible. Some people say it's terrible, Adam. You know, I, I, so you know, explain to us Medicaid expansion. What is that? And then uh, talk to us about the state of play uh, that you're expecting to see in the legislature in this session, uh, which which you you know a lot about uh, at being in being in Alabama Arise, Northeast Alabama organizer for Alabama Arise. So this is like actually part of your job. So yeah, yeah. Uh, Alabama Rise is a is kind of the leader of the Cover Alabama Coalition, which is the leading voice for Medicaid expansion in the state. Uh, and in terms of what Medicaid expansion is and why it's important, uh, yeah, let's start there. So you know, we had the Affordable Care Act was passed many years ago, um, and as part of that an expanded form of Medicaid was offered, uh, but it was up to the states to decide whether or not to do that. Um, and Alabama is one of 10 states that has chosen not to expand Medicaid. And you won't be surprised that, to hear that most of those are in the South, right? Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, Georgia, et cetera. Uh, and so 
what this would do is the federal government pays for the vast majority of the expanded Medicaid. The state would have to kick in a little bit extra. And by doing so, you would cover a lot of people who are right now in the health insurance coverage gap. They make too much money to qualify for Medicaid as it is, uh, but not enough money to have decent health care, right? Not enough money to get subsidies on the health care exchange. Uh, they don't, maybe they don't get uh, health care through their employer, uh, which is a surprisingly large amount of people, especially here in Alabama. And so Medicaid expansion would cover those people who are in that gap, primarily the working poor. Uh, people who are working, but they're struggling to get by. Uh, Medicaid expansion in Alabama would cover almost 300,000 additional people. Um, and that is just huge. If you think about nearly 300,000 of our neighbors getting health care and like health care being less of a concern for them um, and less of a stressor for them and, and being able to stay healthy. Uh, and stay in the workforce, stay in their community, and just participate in their lives. Uh, and so it would save lives if we expanded Medicaid, right? Because every year, those people who, who lack health insurance, some of them suffer and die because of that. And that's that's something we have to be real about. Uh, so it would save lives. It would improve lives. Uh, but then there's the economic impact of it. Uh, many of our rural hospitals are closing or on the verge of closure, uh, Medicaid expansion would, would stimulate those hospitals and keep them around. It would create thousands of new jobs. Um, the Public Affairs Council of Alabama, PARCA, released a report called The Economic Impact of Expanding Medicaid in Alabama. And uh, they, along with Jacksonville State University, put out some information that over six years, it would yield a total savings of $2.38 billion dollars. That's almost $400 million a year that the state would save. And that is more than enough to cover the cost. The estimated cost is about $225 million a year. That's about how much it would cost is the best estimate. Um, less than $250 million a year, which is not a lot when you're talking about a state budget. Uh, but again, the savings would be about $400 million. Now, I am not a math wizard by any means. I taught history and not math for a reason in school, but um, 400 is bigger than 225, right? So uh, I don't think there's any question that Medicaid expansion would pay for itself, particularly after the first year. Um, and it would generate an annual economic impact of almost $2 billion, $1.89 billion. Uh, and because of that, you know, it's not a surprise that most people are in favor of Medicaid expansion, especially when you explain what it would do, how it would help people, how it would grow the economy, how it would grow jobs, uh, and how it would improve people's quality of life. So over 70% of voters support expanding Medicaid in Alabama. Over 70%. Uh, and that includes a majority of Republicans Less than 20% actually said they opposed it. Less than 20%. Mm. So, you know, that's huge. That's huge. An overwhelming majority, including majority of Republicans. So it should be a no-brainer. Uh, it's sad that 
we have gone all these years and have talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. I remember rumors that, you know, Governor Bentley was going to expand Medicaid. And that's been some years now. Um, and, you know, as it stands right now, Alabama's Medicaid is about as restrictive as it comes in the country. You have to you basically can't work. If you have a job, it's almost impossible to get Medicaid. So almost all the people who are on Medicaid in Alabama are children. Um, <clears throat> and so this is a way to help working class people, uh, working poor folks. Now, is it a magic bullet? Like, is it a golden solution? No, of course not. Uh, personally, I believe in single payer healthcare. I, I believe that we should join the rest of the civilized world and have universal healthcare for all people in America. Uh, but in the meantime, as something that pe people in Alabama's elected offices can do, they can expand Medicaid. A and this would help fast food workers, cooks, and restaurant servers. This would help cashiers. This would help carpenters and laborers, housekeepers, janitors, uh, you know, bus drivers, taxi drivers, barbers, uh, you know, mechanics, all sorts of people who are out here working without health care uh, and with inadequate health care. And so it should be a no brainer. Uh, that's a little bit about what it what it would do. Uh, just in Madison County alone, over 10,000 people would gain health insurance. Wow. Uh, in Madison County alone, over uh, $300 million economic impact. And now we hear politicians brag all the time about economic development, new projects that are coming to town, right? Usually because they're uh, funneling subsidies and incentives into some corporation's pocket, right? And they brag about the economic impact. Well, this is, this is providing economic impact, right? And if you say that's what you're about, that you want to grow Alabama's economy, that you want to grow the workforce in Alabama, right, our workforce participation rate, uh, that you want to have more jobs, if we all agree on that, then this make this happen. It's well past time. Uh, you know, supposedly uh, things are a little more receptive now than they used to be. Uh, but it's going to take the legislator speaking out to give the governor enough cover to do this, I believe. Um, I think the governor has shown that, you know, she's not necessarily going to step out on this issue. But if a number of the legislators, especially the, the leaders in the legislature, were to speak out and say, hey, let's do this, um, I think it, it really can happen in 2024. And it would it would be a huge improvement to the quality of life here in Alabama which let's not forget, Alabama ranks at or near the bottom of every aspect of our quality of life. Every aspect. Right. Uh, this is one policy solution that is a way to improve that. It doesn't hurt anyone. It just helps people uh, while helping our economy at the same time. So let's make it happen. It really is um, one of those policies that, that it, 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 it's just difficult to understand the other side because it's, cause it's so cut and dry um, that this would be a good thing for the people of Alabama. 20,000 um, new jobs. 20,000 yeah. new jobs. And we've had 14 hospitals closed since 2010. Right. How is that helping? And, you know, the, and, and the arguments on the other side are, are just 
bonkers. You know, I, I remember doing a segment last year uh, during the last session where, you know, we were talking about this. This is one of those perennial topics. Um, school privatization, Medicaid expansion, and the lottery. If there's an Alabama legislative session, those are going to be the three main topics. Yeah, I think. Some, we're talking about all three for sure. Um, and the uh, although I, you know, the lottery. I no, can, I'm saying I, like yeah, yeah. But yes, it, the, in Alabama, in we're going to be talking yeah. about them every single legislative session. But last year, and, and maybe maybe when we clip this, I can get at, uh, I, I can get Joe to to put the audio um, into this video. But last year there was there was this legislator on um, a conservative radio program talking about this and, and explaining why he thought it was a bad idea. Um, and he was saying that, that Medicaid expansion is a bad idea because uh, it disincentivizes people from working, you know, and <laughs> like it's uh, we're, you know, we're becoming a terrible country, right? you know, and, and it's just so like if you think about that. For, you know, even just two seconds, just literally one Mississippi, two Mississippi, you can understand how absurd that is. Right. Because who is going, who are the people that are out there in other states that are sitting at home thinking, you know, huh, well, I wonder if I should go to work and like provide for my family and provide for myself and give myself like just some amount of material comfort or, or, you know, anything like this. And then they think, no, no, no. I have Medicaid. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who is that? It's not even it, it makes even less sense than the food stamp argument, right? Because the food stamp, I mean at least with food stamps, you you, you know, there's like, oh, I've got food, you know. If you've got food, then that's like, you know, that's a big expense for people. But like healthcare? That's just that's not, you know, something that that doesn't motivate like that it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make and, sense. And the thing is, like, right now, the way Medicaid is structured is a disincentive to work. Because, right. like I explained, if you have basically any income, a family of three must make less than $4,475 a year to qualify for Medicaid. Right. Uh, and so if you make uh, pretty much anything, you don't qualify for it as it is. Whereas right. under expanded Medicaid, this would be primarily working people, people who have jobs, sometimes two or three jobs. Right. But don't have any health care at these jobs. Think about the folks who are working Uber and fast food and all these other different hustles that they're, you know, piecing together to try to make a living. Uh how yeah it's not going to disincentivize them if anything it's going to increase workforce participation that's where we that's what we've seen in the states that right. have expanded which makes sense right because if people can go to the doctor if they can get medication that they require they can stay a little bit healthier they can stay in the workforce there are right. some people who if they do not have their medication they will not be functional adults yeah there are some right. people if they do not see you know get regular treatment they cannot function in the workforce uh so why wouldn't we want more people to have that uh when there is money on the table to make it happen um and so you know we shouldn't let ideology get in the way of common sense right and conversely you know so his argument is that oh if you give people health care and then they're going to have health care whether or not they work, then they'll just choose not to work because there's no incentive. Like, uh, because there's no incentive to work because you have health care. So, like, mm -hmm. if you have a heart attack, you know. Conversely, like you said, and I just want to underline that because it's it's important. Conversely, the way that Medicaid is, is structured right now 
does disincentivize work because if instead of whether you work or not, you have health care, if instead of that, the situation that you have is either you work or you have health care, well, that equation is a lot different, right? That equation is a hell of a lot different. If you have to choose between an income, and especially if you are a person that has like a disability or for some reason like like you you require healthcare to live constantly, that equation is much different. And it right. and and it is it is incentivizing you to stay home, to not be productive. Because if you go and be a little bit productive, then the state takes away the very thing that you need to stay alive, right? So that's that's how absurd the argument that giving people Medicaid would disincentivize work is. It is not only just laughably untrue, it is actually, in fact, the opposite of true. Right, right. And, you know, the other big thing is, oh, well, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? Well, I've already explained to you that it's really a drop in the bucket, a couple hundred million dollars. And the the savings alone, the savings, the economic impact of these people mm-hmm. having jobs, these jobs that are created, the people that are paying taxes now, um, you know, the savings with prisoner health care, the savings everywhere in the system. Uh, right. So it's going to pay for itself. But even if you don't believe that. If you say that's too good to be true, right? Okay, we're on the hook for an extra two hundred million dollars, right? And in exchange, we're saving lives, mm. we're improving lives. Literally, right. hundreds of thousands of people's lives would be changed overnight. Uh, and then you think about all the families and the businesses that they will support, uh, and the communities they live in, right? The multiplier effect—it's really huge. So, okay, you're on the hook for that. It seems like a pretty good investment from where I'm standing uh, as a taxpayer. And the thing is, you find a way to pay for whatever it is that you want every year. Um, You know, the state is currently looking into these mega prisons. Mm. They can afford that, right? You know, apparently, apparently they can afford that. Um, And so... It just, yeah, it really bothers me. There are so many different ways to raise revenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could, you, I mean, Alabama ra- raises the 50th amount in tax revenue per capita. Crazy. We are the, we're the lowest, and you get what you pay for. Right. It's obvious. Right. Drive our roads, go to our schools, look at our government services and infrastructure. It's very obvious right. that we raise the lowest amount of taxes per revenue. Uh, uh, or per capita, and uh, so obviously there's room to change that. Right. Uh, you could, you could, you mentioned the lottery. There's lottery and gambling and marijuana and all these other ways that you could raise revenue without forcing a tax on anyone. If you wanted to, if you were serious about it, more than enough to pay for that. Yeah. More than enough, and so. Uh, that's your job is to govern the state of Alabama and try to make decisions that advance the interest of Alabama's people. I mean, theoretically, yeah. that's your job, uh, not just to go down there and do what lobbyists and funders want you to do. Right. Uh, you should consider how your decisions impact your neighbors and your constituents. Yep. 
Let's go ahead and uh, do our final break, and then we'll come back and wrap up the main part of the show. But just a reminder for folks that are listening to us on uh, WVNN and anywhere else you find us on the radio, on on one of the multiple stations that we are on, uh, we are we do put everything out online, including the first half of the show, including the main show. Uh, but we also have a second half of the program that is online only, folks. Online only. Um, and so you've got a whole lot more content you can you can consume um, and enjoy. So find us on Facebook and YouTube and TikTok, The Valley Labor Report, and continue listening to us after we go off of the radio. We're going to be right back. Stay tuned. In Alabama, more than 200,000 of our friends and neighbors are living without health care coverage. Often folks can't stay healthy enough to keep their jobs. We need to fix this. Let's close the health care coverage gap. To learn more, visit CoverAlabama.org. Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower than average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer, and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. The Laborers International Union of North America, Local 366, is proudly recruiting North Alabama workers to work construction and nuclear plant maintenance. If you're interested, please contact Donna at their training center to start the process. That phone number is 256 415 Again, that phone number is 256-415-7452. No experience is needed. Free training is offered, but you must be able to pass a background check and a drug test. Local hiring that grows our community with good-paying jobs that have benefits is their mission. Live better. Work union. Local 366. Feel the power. 
Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. I'm attorney Tommy Senior. When you've been injured and need help, you need a lawyer who's with you. Senyard Law. You need attorneys always available to take care of you. Senyard Law. And keep you in the loop. It's your case. You need to know what's happening. Senyard Law. And never a charge to meet with us to evaluate your case. Senyard Law. A new firm, but an old name. One that will stay with you every step of the way. Senyard Law. The name with proven results. As labor union members, we face our share of challenges in the workplace. But today, I want to talk about a different kind of challenge, the climate crisis. We've all seen the fury of Mother Nature, the storms that can turn lives upside down in an instant. That's why Hometown Action is launching our climate protection project. We're heading out to 10 rural communities, listening to local folks, and taking action with them to protect communities impacted by climate disasters. And we need you, our union brothers and sisters, to join us. Together, we'll make a difference. Our strength on the job is undeniable, and now it's time to put that strength to work for the planet. Let's protect our communities, our families, and our future. Visit hometownaction.org today and sign up to volunteer for the Climate Protection Campus. Union Talk Radio Show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are back in the new year. Lots of stuff happening. Lots of stuff planned. Big things in 2024. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Uh, on YouTube, we've got over 30 people watching the show and only 22 likes. What's up with that? Let's get those numbers up. Appreciate everybody um, in the chat. Uh, we have a few new people in the chat. Uh, Metal1520 uh, from the Letter Carriers Union. Appreciate you tuning in. Jada, uh, Jules T. Elizabeth from IOTSE13 in Minnesota. Thanks for tuning in. Jose uh, from California, Teamsters uh, at UPS. Appreciate everybody tuning in and watching. Um, means a lot also on facebook we have joe and mel as always thanks for tuning in folks um i don't think that our phone lines are open let's oh no turn those on if we sure can. uh and while he does that i'll go ahead and, and tell you what bosses were up to in the u.s south and the american colonies <laughs> while we were on break from the 15th of december to the 5th of January. Over in Texas, South Austin Nissan, a car dealership in Austin, Texas, operated by NICPA Central Auto Group, subjected female employees to sexual harassment and retaliated against employees when they reported the harassment. The U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission charged in a lawsuit. According to the EEOC's lawsuit, three managers at South Austin Nissan engaged in egregious and persistent sexual harassment towards female employees. These managers regularly touched or attempted to touch female employees. They also made sexual comments about female employees, critiquing their physical appearance and referring to the employees' personal relationships. Managers encouraged female salespeople to, quote, show more, sell more, 
suggesting the woman wear revealing clothing at work to succeed in sales opportunities. The sales manager created a culture in which discussing vulgar vulgar sexual encounters and watching sexual videos was fairly commonplace. Several female employees who suffered harassment were forced to leave their jobs because of the manager's conduct. Several employees, including a male manager, reported the harasser's behavior to both NICPA Central Auto Group's Director of Human Resources and the Chief Operating Officer. However, no appropriate investigation, effective corrective action, or remedial action was taken in response to the complaints. Instead, the reporting employees were transferred to other dealerships managed by NICPA Central Auto Group, one reporting manager was transferred, received a reduction in pay, and was subsequently terminated for standing up against harassment. Wow. The EEOC filed suit in U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas, Austin Division, after first attempting to reach a pre-litigation settlement through its conciliation process. In this case, EEOC seeks back pay damages, compensatory and punitive damages, and injunctive remedies, including implementation of stronger oversight over investigations into sexual harassment and discrimination. Right here in Sweet Home, Alabama, the U.S. Department of Labor has recovered $26,927 in back wages and liquidated damages for 36 employees of an Alabama fast food enterprise that allowed management at two of its Montgomery locations to deduct time worked illegally, which led to federal minimum wage and overtime violations. The department's Wage and Hour Division investigators found Checkerboard Montgomery and Checkerboard Montgomery 2 knowingly permitted managers to violate the Fair Labor Standards Act by doing the following. Clocking out employees while they continued working, deducting break time from workers' schedules whether or not they took breaks, deleting entire portions of shifts from pay records, altering time cards to reduce workers' hours, and not paying them overtime as required. In 2020, the division also found wage violations by Checkerboard Foods LLC at its rallies locations in Bessemer and Birmingham. The enterprise also operates rallies franchise locations in Montgomery. In addition to the most recent recovery of back wages and damages, the division assessed the employer uh, with $3,600 in civil money penalties for the repeated nature of its violations. Division investigators also learned that Checkerboard Montgomery and Checkerboard Montgomery 2 violated federal child labor regulations by employing six, six 15-year-old employees to work for more than three hours per day and more than 18 hours per week while school was in session and more than eight hours per day when school was not in session past 9 p.m between June 1st and Labor Day, and past 7 p.m. during the rest of the year. The division assessed the employer $5,000 in civil money penalties to address the child labor violations. And finally, in Texas, a federal investigation into the fatal roof collapse at Friendswood High School in June 2023, in which four workers suffered injuries, including one who later died, found two Houston area contractors exposed employees to safety hazards by ignoring federal requirements to complete an engineering survey before demolition began. 
The U.S. Department of Labor's Occupational Safety and Health Administration determined that supervisors of ICI Construction Incorporated and Emanuel Enterprises LLC failed to complete the survey and allowed demolition to continue even after hazards became apparent to them. In fact, they directed employees to continue to work under the structure that later collapsed on them. OSHA issued citations to ICI Construction, the general contractor, and Emanuel Enterprises, the project's demolition contractor, for willfully ignoring federal requirements to complete an engineering survey. In addition, the agency cited Emanuel Enterprises for three serious safety violations for its failure to protect workers from silica exposure and use respirators properly. OSHA assessed a total of $315,000 in proposed penalties, including $175,000 for Emanuel Enterprises and $140,000 for ICI Construction both set by federal statute. We had several dishonorable mentions over the break. The U.S. Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division found that Atlanta United Interiors, a painting contractor in Georgia, misclassified 32 painters and as independent contractors and paid the affected employees straight time rates for all hours worked. By doing so, the employer denied workers their additional half-time rate for hours over 40 in a work week and overtime violation of the Fair Labor Standards Act. $87,000 in back wages for 32 workers were recovered. In Georgia, there are more there are currently more than 7,000 workers owed more than 2.2 million dollars recovered by the agencies and individuals can use the agency's workers owed wages research uh, workers owed wages search tool to see if they were owed back wages collected by the agency. The U.S. Department of Labor announced today that its Mine Safety and Health Administration completed impact inspections at 14 mines in 10 states in November 2023, issuing 184 violations and one safeguard. The U.S. Department of Labor has reached a settlement agreement with Pepsi Guam Bottling after an inspection by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration found the company exposed employees to amputation and other serious injuries, requiring Pepsi Guam Bottling to pay $132,000 in penalties, abate the safety failures found in OSHA's investigation, and implement a comprehensive safety and health program to protect workers moving forward. UPS will pay $150,000 and provide other relief, including offering reinstatement to a discharged employee in Florida with diabetes, the U.S. uh, EEOC announced. According to the EEOC suit, the employee asked a human resources representative for the accommodation of an occasional short break to check his blood sugar and eat or drink something if necessary. After initially agreeing to the request, the HR rep later told him that UPS could not grant the accommodation and then fired him. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, a pediatric healthcare system in Georgia, will pay $45,000 to settle a religious discrimination lawsuit filed by the USEEOC, uh, which charged in its lawsuit that a maintenance employee requested a religious exemption to CHOA's flu vaccination requirements based on sincerely held religious beliefs in accordance with CHOA's procedures. They initial uh, they granted the same employee a religious exemption in 2017, 2018, and 2018. However, in 2019, the uh, uh, company denied the employee's request for religious accommodation and fired him, the EEOC said, despite the employee working primarily outside and his position requiring limited interaction with the public or staff. So that's interesting. Interesting stuff there. Um, So the uh, uh, last big piece of news we wanted to make sure that we got to was... um, 
an officer in Decatur, Alabama, being charged with murder by Republican Morgan County District Attorney. Um, and that is very big news. Uh, I don't think that's what, uh, I don't know if that's what people were expecting, but that's, that's a really big deal. Um, so there was a murder charge for one, no charges for the other three, although the other three were fired and they are contesting their firing. Um, even if they are fired, the other three will presumably get another job <coughs> as a police officer. Uh, the cop was smiling in his mugshot, uh, which is really gross. Um, 23 year, year old. 23 years old. Uh, alleged murderer at 23. And that's what, you know, that's po what police departments do to people. Um, it's not good for the, not good for the police or uh, the community when they do stuff like this. The grand jury was mostly white, if that's, uh, you know, if that matters, because it, it is a racially tinged shooting with the uh, uh, the killer being white and the victim being black. They're still not uh, the D.A. is still not releasing body cam footage, he said in his press uh, in his press conference to protect the jury pool um, because he doesn't want people's opinions tainted. Uh, before uh, jury selection, which I don't, you know, like, I don't understand that. I think how would seeing evidence before the jury affect your ability to serve on the jury? That seems strange to me. Um, they He was also asked, the district attorney, and this was insane during the press conference, one of the questions that he was asked was if this would affect recruitment for police in Decatur. And, you wow. know, like, imagine that, right? Like, uh, <laughs> asking, oh, if you hold your police officers accountable uh, for killing the citizens that they are charged with protecting, uh, would that affect recruitment? Like, that question is not an, indi an indictment on the district attorney. That question is an indictment on the culture of policing in this country and an indictment on the people that would apply for a job in the Decatur Police Department. Not an indictment on the district attorney. Um, there is... Uh, some allegations that, um, you know, on, on this radio station, one of the hosts says that that he is hearing from sources that uh, the D.A. is overshooting in order to get a plea deal so that something is on the books so that he can say he did something. And that sounds uh, not that does not sound um that doesn't pass my smell test. A uh, Republican district attorney in Morgan County, you know, not, uh, you know, not a very, you know, uh, not, not a very large black population in Morgan County, not a very large Democratic population in Morgan County. Uh, so why would, for what reason, for what reason would a Republican district attorney want to, quote, get something on the books uh, with this police officer. That doesn't make sense to me. But that's what he says he's saying. Uh, that's, what, that's what people are saying that they're hearing. Um, I, I think that another option could be that, and, and this kind of aligns more with the incentives, I think, could be that uh, the district attorney is overshooting 
charging with murder, which is, which, you know, now whether or not murder is in a, the appropriate charge is one thing, right? But we know how juries in the United States um, deal with cops and they're traditionally extremely lenient with cops. Uh, and so murder charges are very difficult to, to land. They're very difficult to land where, you know, an aggravated manslaughter or something like that is much easier. So, uh, so even if, you know, aggravated manslaughter might be below the charge, uh, if you charge them with aggravated manslaughter, that'd be a much easier thing. That's a much easier threshold to meet. Right. And so my thinking, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I've heard this from any sources with any knowledge. I haven't, this is just my thinking, but, but you know. Is that it's possible that the district attorney is overshooting so that he doesn't actually have to get anything on the books, so that the guy can just walk scot free, right? That's that's possible. Um, but hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully this district attorney is you know actually you know actually interested in enforcing the law and in holding you know uh, police officers to account. That would be good. Um, you know. That that would be a good development. So we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, um, obviously, a grand jury looked at it and right. decided murder charges were appropriate. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I, I mean, and that's something. That really is something. Um, you know. Yeah. And so it's taken way too long to get to this point. But um, yeah, I, I guess pleasantly surprised when I saw that there was going to be some real accountability. Yeah. Uh, now the bond is very low mm. uh, for the accused murderous cop. Uh, I believe they said his bond at thirty thousand dollars, which yep. does seem extremely low for a murder charge. Um, I mean, people with much less crimes than that have much higher bonds mm. than that. So that's interesting. I don't know if that's a favor to one of the you know as you know the police looking out for police kind of thing i don't right. i don't know um but you know i just hope to see some justice there and um it's been really inspiring to see the the way that community members have united and and kept the pressure on local officials to to do something yeah uh, you know there's been sustained interracial protest indicator uh for months now and <clears throat> um you know people have just really stood strong and spoken up about the need to have real accountability that you can't just have police officers coming into communities right. and killing people. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's obscene. And, uh, I hope to see real justice take place. I mean, nothing's going to bring that man back, unfortunately. And that's the really sad thing about it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and it's difficult to, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and, and, and the body cam footage is not out, but there is some home security camera footage that is out, uh, that is, that, that just, that, you know, does not look good for the cops. (laughs) Um, doesn't even give the guy a chance to comply with the order says police get on the ground and then you hear just this barrage of shots um yeah it doesn't look good it doesn't look good uh for, for the police um uh it, it it doesn't look like a good shoot but you can't see much from the from the home security camera footage which is why the body camera footage should be released and it should be released immediately and it's also worth noting that you know and this is and each 
if I want to be charitable, each time that body camera footage is released or not released, you know, it's a different set of people making that decision in, in each location. But there is a trend that emerges, and the trend that has emerged is that where body camera footage they feel is is exculpatory, it's immediately released. And this is uh, this has been true nationwide, um, in, in cases across the country where the cops or the district attorney feels that the body camera footage uh, looks good for the police it's immediately released and where it will be more controversial or where it looks bad for the police. Uh, they hide it for months and months and years sometimes. Um, and that's, that's not good. I mean, there's, there should just be a policy of like, I mean, frankly, frankly, uh, uh, you know, there should be a policy that, that yeah, anytime somebody is arrested, like you should be able to, you know, you should be able to see the body camera footage. Our tax dollars pay for yeah. it. Last I checked. Yep. So, so there we go. That's the update on that. Um, you know, I haven't been following it terribly closely, but, uh, but you know, if a Morgan County grand jury and a Republican district attorney is charging this guy with murder, uh, you know, <laughs> it's not like they're, <laughs> it's not like they're like crazy. It's not like they're like, you know, uh, radical anti-cops, anti-cop people in this situation. Right. So. No, no, not at all, not at all, and I don't, I don't think there are any of those folks really involved, and and I, I think um, some of the, yeah, some of the conversations that you hear on right wing talk radio about it is pretty disgusting, and I'll leave it at that. Um, okay, so we've got a little bit more time uh, left in the main show. We can we can just touch on school choice really quickly. School choice, quote unquote, really school privatization. And you know, really, just just the main thing that I that I want to say here is that that as we're leaving the radio, and I'm I'm hopefully we're kind of like at the high point of the radio listenership at this point in the program. So, folks that are listening to me on the radio. As you hear people over this legislative session, as you hear folks go around promoting, quote unquote, school choice, uh, the diversion of public money to private schools, as you hear people promoting this, I want to uh, uh, encourage you to listen to them as they promote it, and see if they point to any evidence at all that this is actually a good policy for the public. Uh, and by evidence, I mean looking at places that have implemented similar policies and seeing the results. Because it's not as if at this point, at this point in the school reform, education reform movement, it's not like this hasn't been tried in other places. Uh, it has. And so there's evidence. We can look. We can look and see what uh, the, these voucher programs have done in uh, states across the country. We can just look and see, right, before and after what happened. And some of it, you know, there's there's a certain amount that you've got to do some, you know, taking some data with a grain of salt, right, because there's a lot of confounding variables and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, there are some people that are doing good research that are trying to, you know, do everything that they can to remove all the other variables and just see what the voucher programs are doing, right? And so just just listen for that data. Listen for that data. Listen for people to 
tell you what the advantages have been, where quote-unquote school choice has been implemented. Because last year, uh, they didn't tell you that data. Like the entirety, and I listened pretty closely. I don't listen to uh, talk radio as much as I used to, but last year I did. Last year I listened to talk radio a lot. I read a lot of the right-wing newspapers, and I can't remember a single time that they pointed to places where this has been implemented and touted the results. Can't remember a single time. And that should tell you something, right? Right? If people, you know, because when people talk about Medicaid expansion, we're not just, uh, oh, theoretically, you know, when they talk about school choice, it's all theoretical. It's like all, you know, ideological. You know, oh, theoretically, you know, competition is good. Competition, good. This is, And so if competition, then school's good. That's like the argument. That's literally the argument. If competition, school's good, okay? Uh, no data, right? So when we talk about Medicaid expansion, that's not what we say. We just, we, you know, we don't just say healthcare good. We point to other states where this is happening. We point to studies uh, uh, predicting the results based on the results in other states, right? There's data there. We can look and see what's happened because Medicaid expansion is not a unique thing, right? It's happened before, and so has voucher programs. So there's data out there, so you should look for it. I don't have, we've done a deep dive into the data before. I don't have everything with me right now, but, but the general consensus of the thing is that they're, they're just not better than public schools on the whole, generally speaking. There are obviously some charter schools that do better than public schools, but there are also some charter schools that do worse than public schools. And a lot of the ones that do better do better because uh, they are able to select <laughs> the students that go there. They don't have a charge to educate every child in the district. It's only certain people that even apply. And then of the people that even apply, uh, they only get uh, they only accept so many. Right. <clears throat> so there's a big difference there. And, and so it's just the there's not evidence to suggest that there are uh, general and widespread benefits there, from school voucher programs. There's just not. Right, right. And there is plenty of evidence from Louisiana and, and places like Indiana, Ohio, uh, Milwaukee, where they have tried these vouchers and it has been disastrous yeah. in terms of academic outcomes. If that's what you're interested in, right? right. If that's what you're interested in. Now, as you've pointed out, some of this is just ideological. It's not really about like, oh, well, our schools, you know, our kids deserve a better <clears throat> education. Right. Um, it's it's an ideological attachment to free market competition uh, and to a, a belief in – well, a disbelief in the public and the concept mm. of the public and the idea of public education, period. Right. Um, and, you know, a lot of times it's intertwined with – you know, various forms of reactionary segregationist type of ideology. And that segregation is not just by race, but by class and ability and language and religion. Yeah. Um, because let's not forget how many of these private schools are religious schools. Mm. Uh, and so what you have is the state subsidizing religious indoctrination for kids who may or may not even be really consenting to that. 
Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you're going to tell parents of at-risk kids that this is the solution. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it's there's a lot of promises that are made with it. But, yeah, there's no uh, there's no proof. Um, it's about putting public dollars into private pockets and, yeah. you know, and in some cases about segregation. Right. Um, it's certainly been that way in Alabama throughout the history of it. Right. There's not a surprise that, you know, when integration of our schools started is when a lot of these, uh, you know, private academies popped up all over the, the state um, and a lot of the church schools that popped up all over the state. And these are some of the same ones that have their hands out wanting voucher money now. Right. Uh, and it's unfortunate that you have some legislators who, uh, you know, are pushing that. Uh, but there's been special interest pushing this agenda for a very, very long time here and all over the country. Right. Yep. So, you know, so listen for it, folks. Listen for it. Go, you know, go do your own do your own research. You know, go look look this up yourself, you know, on your own time. But as you are hearing people propagandize to you about the value of this. Listen for evidence, listen for numbers listen for stuff like that and and see if they have anything beyond competition makes school good right because that's all that they had last last year that's the only thing that they had last year <clears throat> that about does it for our time on the radio folks thanks for tuning in like i said we've got a whole second half of the program whole second half of the program we call overtime where we are free from the shackles of the fcc censors um this uh today we're going to be talking some about Elon Musk, uh, his fight against uh, free speech and the Constitution and the National Labor Relations Board. Uh, we're going to be talking about Joe Rogan. We're going to be talking to the National Organizing Director for the American Federation of Government Employees. Really excited for that conversation. Uh, going to be talking about uh, comedy being legal again at NPR, uh, predictions for 2023's union density. Oh, oh, so much, so much we're talking about in overtime. So you're going to want to find us on Facebook and YouTube at the Valley Labor Report. Uh, you can give us a call, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Um, and if you don't find us online, we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for tuning in.